This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Stefan Vosser. He is the managing director of Maurice Lacroix Watches in Switzerland. Stefan, hello. Hi, Ariel. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Um, I'm really excited to talk about Maurice Lacroix watches because when I grew up in watches, I remember going to department stores here in Los Angeles and seeing the Maurice Lacroix uh, counters. It was a brand that you would see on regular people. And, you know, I think that means so much to me and a lot of other people because a lot of these brands, as you know, you don't really see in the world unless you're in the right circles. Um, uh, comment a little bit about sort of the history of Maurice Lacroix and, you know, its status as being more of a mainstream brand. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about being mainstream brand and, and uh, one thing that is important for the brand since, since we exist is this high perceived value. You know, we've been founded in 1975. Uh, originally it was a kind of a private label workshop. We were, we were catering to, uh, a lot of markets in Asia because of the business of the founders, but also in the US. And, and basically people were coming to us and telling us, Hey, listen, I like this watch, but you know, a different style can make it, or I have a business. I need 300 of these watches. So that's kind of the origins of Maurice Lacroix. And it was such a good business that is, that the owners thought one day, okay, let's, let's do the brand out of this. And then uh, that's when Maurice Lacroix started. And since the start, I mean, we've always been listening to our customers. We've always been trying to, you know, bring the high-end watchmaking because being in Switzerland, that's what we, we know. That's what we do. And uh, this is how we're actually, we've always been focusing on, on the, these needs. People telling us, oh, I'd like this uh, very special complication or like this specific uh, movement or specific design. But, you know... Um, can you make it at a good price? And that's been. So, so you're the saying company. you're saying the brand started, and I guess the the industry term is private label, where you would make watches for other people's specification, and then at some point, everyone was like, you know what? These people are selling these watches and making a pretty high margin. Maybe we could do that as well. Is that sort of how it went? Yeah, absolutely. Because the yeah. only company, yeah. No, I I, I guess uh, I was also curious, and again. You, you made an interesting point about the brand does a very good job of listening to the customer and producing what the customer wants. And I think that opens up a larger discussion about what that means today. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but the customer was the retailer distributor, and today the customer is the end customer. Is that correct or am I wrong? Absolutely. That's correct. And uh, you you see it with the development work we've done on the icon. We've done market research. Uh, we've developed, I mean, it took us about two years to develop the watch. And it was really to fill a need because we were known for uh, masterpieces, but precious pieces were very expensive. If you, 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 if you talk about, you know, uh, everybody's uh, wallet and our focus is on 1000 to 3000 Swiss francs. You can dollars more or less the same. And, uh, then the icon, we were looking for something in that price bracket because masterpiece was more around the 10,000s. And, uh, you know, we, we did a lot of design works, development works. And at the end, uh, we had actually this watch from the nineties, which was a Calypso, which at that time was positioned around between 500 for quads dollars up to two to 3000. And we revamped this. Of course, uh, we, we didn't want to call it Calypso in 2016. 
So we call it icon also with the sense that we people know when they look at the motorcycle catalog, the icon is the iconic or the signature watch. So, you know, it's very easy for people to navigate the brand. And, and also this would kind of fill the, the briefing or the, the need of, you know, I need a quality watch. I need a Swiss made watch and I needed to have an accessible price. I want to go back to the point you made about market research, which I think is really crucial. And I want to use it to discuss the bigger challenge that a lot of watch brands face today, of course, including Maurice Lacroix, and that is what to produce. You know, what watch do you make next? What does the consumer want? It used to be, and again, I'm talking to everyone listening, watch brands used to be in the relatively fortunate position where a retailer, like a department store, would say, hey, we want these colors and these sizes and maybe these price points, figure some stuff out. And it was a relatively narrow set of parameters to work within that was comfortable. Fast forward to today, um, there's a lot more questions and creativity that need to be applied to that process. You, you know, you sort of talked about it really quick, but help help us understand what does market research today at a luxury watch brand really look like? How big of a scope is that? And where do you get the information? I mean, either you organize it in a very, let's say, traditional way of market research, uh, doing focus groups in, in key markets. Uh, for the icon, we did five, five markets. So we did, uh, China, we did Hong Kong, we did the US, we did Russia, and we did Germany. Uh, and, and in all of these markets, we had focus groups with many people and we actually presented designs. We presented ideas. Uh, we presented campaigns. And uh, we, we let our customers or actually our target group, potential customers, uh, give us feedback on, on you know, how they, they think of the watch, how they think of the campaign, what the brand is saying. Is, is this fitting their needs? Is it, are they happy with it or not? But uh, um, there's another great way today and, and let's say a very affordable way to do market research. It's, it's social media because your customer give you a lot of feedback on social media. If you put out a design of a watch, you get a reaction on, on for example, Instagram immediately. Uh, and this also helps to find your way and, and seeing, am I on the, in the right or the wrong? Um, I'm going to sort of approach this from a different perspective because I love this topic and I find it so interesting because you're right. As a watch brand, you can't just sort of make something random uh, and hope that it does well. You need to you know, get a sense of what the market wants. But at the exact same time, and, and I think we've seen this happen many times over the course of the watch industry, the market doesn't know always what it wants. It wants to be surprised. It wants to be impressed. It wants to be outstanding. How do you mix this idea of trying to study what the market wants with presenting them novelty, something fresh, something unexpected? In other words, how do you marry gauging current demand with creating new demand the consumer never even know that they had before? I mean, here at Moisaco, it's a very well-defined process. We have um, product development teams and and, and meetings uh, with uh, all sorts of uh, of, of uh, levels. We have retailers, uh, we have distributors giving feedback. We have people from sales, of course, but also marketing and and also people that don't have anything to do with marketing or sales production, for example. And here, it's it's a mix of inputs we get from uh, suppliers it's a mix of uh, feedback we get from trends uh, and and design companies um, it's it's feedbacks we get from uh, from observing what's what's hot in the market and and it's a mix of all of this and it's you have to find the right balance because you know if you know how it is technical people are very technical and they can be really very motivated and excited about about a great technical idea 
But then when you present to a customer, there's kind of the, the aha effect to say, okay, is it something great or not? Usually what happens right. is you have a great technical ideas and then it comes out and it's like, yeah, so what? Because you have to educate them, right? Because the, the the factory worker that really knows about finishing and how difficult it is to, you know, maybe create or assemble this has a different perspective than the consumer that is a little bit more basic. They look at look, they look at familiarity, they look at comfort, they look at functionality. You know, because there's a bunch of difficult to create components on the dial, doesn't automatically translate into demand, right? Yeah, absolutely. But there, then again, you know, it's. It, it remains, I mean, it's, it's, it's in the purchasing process, you know, it remains a very, it remains emotional first and rational afterwards. So, um, if you, if you don't grab the customer on the emotional side, you have no chance just with rational. Now, emotions are what sell luxury watches today. And I think that that's something which come, becomes clear to everyone. What is your particular strategy of gauging and measuring emotion when looking at market research? I, I, I see that you're a data person. I see that you like to observe the pulse of the market. But that doesn't, you know, there aren't necessarily clear signals. What do you do to sort of investigate emotions and then figure out how to apply products and messages against those emotions, if that makes sense? I mean, of, of course, the ultimate emotion is when you do a sale, because there you know you, you're, you're spot on. But there's a whole process. And, and uh, in the developmental research projects, how we do it is, is either in research groups or, or what we do is we, we prepare designs we share them already with our sales teams we share them with our distributors with our retailers and then we already ask the first forecast uh, and and either either way you know you, you you get a good sense if if you get pre-orders or or quickly high level of forecast you know okay this has potential uh, the other way around i mean same thing when you market research or if you are talking you know, with also with the press and and, and people in the market you get quite a fairly good feedback uh, straight away on on the you know the potential of the product just from its aesthetics its looks because the emotion the emotional part is the design part of the product if you want to yeah? and the rational part is more the technical and the mechanical part right right well okay so let's put some of this into context in terms of how serious it is because it's easy to sit there and talk about you know measuring consumer demand and studying the market but what's at stake i think is so important because you put any brand, a large amount of money into development, a production run, and then you're sitting on this inventory, what's at stake if you measure the market wrong? It doesn't matter if the product is good or not. It just doesn't have immediate demand. Like, What's at stake in this process? Meaning, how important is it that when you develop a product, it has some success in the market, if that makes sense? Well, I, I, there's a, there's an old saying is, is, I mean, you can do a, a market research before a launch or after the launch, but the cost after the launch mostly certainly is, is, is higher. Be, meaning, you know, if you don't use kind of a market research or market screening, uh, you're going to launch a product. You, you may be lucky it flies off the shelf, but if you're not lucky, you just have, you've done all your development work. You've done all your sourcing. You've done all your production. You shipped it, all your logistics in the markets. It's sitting in the store and it's not going to fly out. So, you know, that's a, the whole process is a lot of money. So it's, it's better to, to invest a bit more upfront than down the line. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that what we see as a manifestation of the exact situation you're talking about is a lot of brands 
playing it safe because, as you said, you want things to fly off the shelf right away. Brands today, even though these are some big companies, still operate on relatively short time frames, meaning you can't have a watch take five or six or seven years to get popular. If it doesn't appear to be popular within five or six or seven months, you have to sort of just drop it and move on. Is that is that a good status quo or do you sort of miss the days where you had a larger assortment of products, you could do a little bit more experimentation? Because I worry a little bit that these very short time frames rob the industry of more experiments. You know, the, the Royal Oak was an experiment. It took decades to get popular. Do you feel that there's still room for enough experimentation in the market today? I mean, you can do experimentation, but you, you need to structure it properly. And you need to know, okay, this is an experiment. Here we're putting money and, and you leave it to risks. You know? um, if, if the, as you say, the old, the old way of doing it was you do 300 watches, you throw them in the market and, and 10 work and you're happy. It's too much cash involved. And a company like Maurice Lacroix, we, we don't have the, these means that we can just throw out as much of the, this amount of, of, uh, of innovation and new watches in the market and just, you know, see what happens. And if the stock doesn't sell, just buy it back. It's not the strategy. So we're a bit more cautious. Um, but I, uh, development times at our company, I mean, it's, it's 12 to 18 months for something normal, uh, meaning a, a, a purchase quartz or mechanical movement. Uh, with the whole design process, the whole pre-series, and, and and of course the market feedback before we really launch it. If it's a watch where we do the movement, because we also have this capacity in-house to to produce our own movements, then it's it's minimal three years development, and if not five, so until it hits the market. And what we usually look at is when we launch a product, we we give it. Let's say after a year, we, we look at it and we don't take it out of the portfolio directly after a year. We, we give it two years, two and a half years. But it's, you know, it's, uh, it, it doesn't have to perform in, in four months. You have <laughs> these, these <laughs> I mean, if you, it's, you know, watchmaking is a very slow industry. So by the time you present it and by the time he hits the retail shelves, it takes about six months already. So do you wish you had more to play with? Because I mean, every manager wants to have more money to play with when it comes to experimentation, marketing, things like that. Like, do you routinely find yourself saying, if only I had more, I would do so much more? No, I, I, I think, I mean, if only I had more, I, I would put my, more, much more in advertising, of course. But um, if I had more, I mean, already, when we present, we, we sell, we present every year about 20 to 30 no, uh, novelties, so single stock keeping units. Um, but actually, to get to these 30, we, we designed and, and developed. So we designed about two to 300 watches, projects out of those two or 300. Yeah, we, we do about 100 prototypes. And so there's a lot. I mean, I've been to the manufacturers a few years ago now, and it, you know, it is a wonderful facility where you can see there's a lot of innovation and a lot of experimentation, a lot of passion. But like you said, so little of what goes on eventually makes its way to market. Who who has the ultimate say? Is it you? Is it sort of like um, a committee approach? I always wonder who has the last decision on what projects go ahead and what don't. Yeah, I mean we're a very democratic team. So what we do is, and you know, being Swiss, you you are democratic. So uh, we we have a product committee and we do votes. So every project is voted and, and this committee are people from sales, people from marketing, people from production. There's uh, people from out of, out of the markets and we have two sessions a year 
And then the product team just presents it. There's a, there's a first session, it's only design. And the second session, it's, it's on prototype. Now you have the, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting part to the culture. And, and what you're saying is that if there is a failure, no one person can take the blame. It's like, okay, everyone, we voted on it. We all thought it would work because it didn't. You know, it's, it's difficult to assign blame. So it's a very sort of safe managerial approach. But there's a complete other perspective, which is sort of, you know, the, the more autocratic perspective where there's one leader who, you know, he or she says, you know, this is what's going to happen. Um, this is what works. Um, and, and, and the market in, in the Swiss watch industry is, is a blend of the two. I think it's a little bit more the committee approach. Do you think one way is better than the other? Do you think that there should be a blend of the two? Because these are two very different ways of deciding what product gets made. I mean, the, the risk when you one person just launches watches based on his feelings and his knowledge of the market. And, and it's, I mean, me as a managed director, I, I don't pretend to have all the answers and to know everything. And I, I want to have the feedback from the sales. I want to have the feedback from the market. I want to have the feedback from the trends. And, and mixing all this, you know, feedback gives you feedback or, or critics. I say it's always a happy solution and gives you, you, you go very far in the process because when you bring something out, you have a certain sense of, of it's going to work or at least it's going to sell. How often would you say that the, the team is wrong? Meaning you all agree, okay, everyone, this sounds like a great idea. You move forward with it. And it was a bit of a bluster. Does that, does that happen a lot? And you were like, well, if only this one person made a decision. I'm just wondering internally how successful that is. I mean, it's a good approach. Like you said, it's a very, very Swiss approach. But how often does that give you the results that, that you want? I, I'm genuinely curious. Yeah, I mean... Um... Per year, maybe you had out of 30 watches launched, there's maybe a, a 15 to 20% that doesn't really work or doesn't really sell. So that's pretty good. That So, you know, 80%, 85% still does pretty well. That's that, that's a good track record. Yeah. I mean, in the past, there, were, there was much more. But in the past, the problem was when we were launching, we were launching about 180 skis a year. So this is also something we had to be aware of it. And, and, and it doesn't make sense, you know. You, you, yeah. You're almost replacing half of your portfolio every year. So after two years, none of your watches are there anymore. It's not the strategy. We want, you know, we want to create a value. To create a value, your watches still have to be the same in 10 years. Uh, it still has to be in the catalog. So you can't yeah. replace your catalog every year. No, no, you can't. I, speaking of the catalog, I remember, especially when I came to visit the manufacturer, there was a lot of focus on the Masterpiece collection, which has, you know, those, those fully in-house or partially in-house made movements that were higher price points. Why do you think it was important to go back to um, a more accessible price point? Or potentially, what is it that the Masterpiece Collection didn't do um, that it may was able to, maybe it was, a, maybe it was a design, maybe it was a marketing, I don't really know, to sort of bring more attention to what was going on? Because even though those were more expensive, they were a good value in the scheme of you know in-house movements and things like that. What do you think the company could have done differently if you had to do it over again with that sort of masterpiece era five, six, seven, or eight years ago? I mean, the, the masterpiece era five, six, seven years ago is, is I mean, it was in a time where all the, um, where we were, the whole industry was afraid that they didn't get any uh, simple mechanical movements from ETA. So everybody started working on a, on a, on a manufacturing base. And, um, you know, it's, it's always a question of, Back in the time, in that moment, when you have to take the decision, well, they, they take the right decision. Um, now with, with some 
some time looking back and, and, and some time for feedback. I mean, it was maybe too fast, you know, uh, because they basically almost overnight, they changed all the watches to, 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 to manufacture and higher price points. And then you, what you, what we sort of forgot is at the end, it's a kind of, it's a customer, it's a consumer buying and, and the price has doubled. And then you were from, you know, masterpieces were retailing in the past between three and three and seven, eight thousand. And then over the night in Basel 2008, they were, <laughs> the price point was starting at, at 9,000, 10,000 and it was going right. up to 28, 30,000. So, uh, then we, we lost, cust- uh, we lost sight of our customer base, but our customer is the one to 3,000. Uh, and, and in that area, people, um, like, techniques functions but it's not you're not talking to high-end collectors uh, you have some which we know which who know our story who appreciate what we do uh, but we are not a collector brand you know it's uh, right it, it, it's, it's a mass product i i think that's so important that you shared that story because it's a perfect example of a phenomenon that i started talking about years ago i don't know if you've ever read it but i wrote an article i think it's like five years ago now and it was basically how the in-house movement or how the push for in-house movements ruined the modern watch industry, and it's it, and I'm it's exact scenario you talked about. Edda goes out there and says to everyone, "Hey, uh, I know we've been supplying you watches, but uh, we're going to stop supplying you movements, and uh, we encourage you to make your own manufacturer, uh, make your own movements because you can't rely on us anymore." And and many companies that were relying on Edda movements, Marisa Kwa included. Um, you know, said, oh, okay, so this is what we need to do and invested in the facilities to make movements, which of course increases the overhead, which means that you have to charge more for your watches. And then, you know, after a lot of market pressure and things like that, Edda kind of made an about face and says, oh, you know what, just kidding. Uh, we're actually going to sell you movements again. You were there throughout a lot of this process. What was that like internally? Because that seems like a lot of people might have been really frustrated and 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 justifiably upset at Edda. Yeah, I mean, what looking back, what Edda did, I think was 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 quite a quite a good move and quite smart because it pushed the whole industry, uh, the whole industry to wake up. It was a really wake up call, and it when you look how many new brands developed manufacturing components of of movements, how many new players in the market we have now, how many solutions and 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 technical solutions we have it's great uh, if Edda hadn't done that in the past we would be today uh, a very mono market mono movement uh, watch industry and nobody would have invested in innovation in, in, in that field okay that that's an interesting point and i agree with you that you have all these wonderful alternatives to Edda, you know, the Salidas of the world, and there's there's more of them now than ever. And all of their development was brought about by the fact that Edda said, we're going to stop and you need to do it yourself. But at the same time, um, a lot of companies had to go through that weird period where they had these watches that may have been fantastic, but to a large degree were, were more money than the market could bear. And you're saying that that, that that was worth it. That even though there was that period where there was a hiccup, um, overall, it made sense because now, as a company that does rely on a lot, a lot of third-party components, there's more options than ever, and that gives you a competitive advantage. Yeah, and and you know, I'd like to add, what's great is, I mean, if this didn't happen, we wouldn't have today this competent in-house to produce our own movements. Of course, I mean, uh, the downside of it is 
when you produce movements in a small series, then the price of the movement logically, you know, small batches, high prices, big batches, lower prices. So this is the challenge we faced in on our side because, you know, with with mechanical movement, uh, known in-house movement, we're not capable of bringing something out below six or 7,000 Swiss francs. And that is by really stretching the margins. But, you know, we're also talking about the future and, and we have plans and um, we, we will also have solutions, but uh, it, not like we did in the past over the night. It's a long process, you know, so right. it's... Uh, so interesting. Really, really interesting. I actually remember, it was years ago now, visiting the brand at Baselworld and the icon was introduced. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, it started as quartz, right? So you went from these very expensive amazing but expensive ten thousand dollar plus you know masterpieces and other ones and then you just dramatically shifted to quartz you've added a lot of mechanical versions of the icon but it began as quartz so you saw a massive shift in the other direction it wasn't like we're going to go down to a mechanical one it was just the complete other direction and then you've built out the icon collection was that a was that sort of a knee-jerk reaction to the idea that we 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 need to get more basic again? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we needed to do is first to touch base with our customers, and these price points of the icon, they the, they would be the logic development of our customer base pre two thousand eight or pre kind of this this crazy at uh, pre eta move, uh, movement scarcity period, and that was the intention, and also. Um, that's more a most aquatic phenomenon, but what we've seen also in the past is when we're strong on the quartz, we create a massive inflow of customers in the brand, and then they get they get a better knowledge of what we do. They appreciate our quality, and then they t- tend to up upgrade or uptrade uh, after a few years into mechanical movements or even into manufacturing. So that's for us, um, uh, and we've seen this in the beginning of the 2000s when we did this with Elibros collections. We've seen this again in 2014, um, and this is also what we're going to do this year with, uh, with with one or two things we're launching. Now, I know the enthusiast community, many of the people listening to this show are mostly interested in mechanical watches. There's a, I think it's unfair and unmerited, but there's a bias against quartz. And and to a degree, I can understand that, you know, if you're spending a lot of money on a luxury watch, you want to have these timeless components. Um, you like having the mechanical movement. You like having that sweeping seconds hand. I get it. With that said, and again, I'd like your input here, the larger luxury watch market still has a large demand for quartz. Talk a little bit about the global demand as far as you see it, for luxury quartz-based watches. What types of customers are buying these? Where, where, in what instances do these watches do better? I, I like to make uh, an argument for quartz. I support luxury quartz watches. I like high-end quartz. And I think it's important for you to, to speak about it because you are a brand that is significantly invested in luxury quartz. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with quartz watches and quartz movement. First of all, it's, it's a highly technical Swiss-made movement with uh, you know long-lasting movement, very precise, so it's very qualitative. And what what uh, you know we're talking here about watches at Maurice Lacroix, you get your first watches at at six ninety five dollars, and you get your first icon for eight fifty, and you got all the quality you would have in in, in a mechanical icon in terms of movement. Uh, sorry, in terms of a case, straps. I mean the whole package, what's around the movement. That, that remains the same quality level than what you have on mechanical watches. 
Um, and, you know, let's not That's remember. True. That's true. Yeah, we're talking here about uh, accessible price points. I mean, not everybody has two, three thousand dollars to spend on, on on a Swiss watch, and it's important that we give the opportunity to people who have a, who have a smaller budget to buy a very nice piece of Swiss-made watchmaking, Swiss-made Swiss uh, luxury watchmaking. And I, I think this is also we, we've seen it. Um, this kind of inflow because this creates a really nice customer base. You've got volume. And this is also once you have somebody on the brand, then it's when you can bring in the message of the mechanical or, or show them what we're capable of doing even in masterpiece. And kind of then, you know, you kind of create some emotions, some, some very nice excitement on, on the mm-hmm. high ends. But quartz is, is, is a great, is a great product. And you, you know, the biggest, the biggest watch brands in the industry, in, 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 uh, in uh, the Swiss made industry, uh, they, they make millions millions of, of watches. Absolutely. I, I want to know a little bit about the relationship with DKSH and, and Quartz. DKSH is the parent company of Maurice Lacroix. And correct me if I'm wrong, it is sort of mainly a distribution company, which means it has the access to many, many stores. And the luxury of having that access means you can you know, really gauge what those stores want to sell and what's moving. And they're identifying that there's an ongoing demand in many parts of the world for, for luxury quartz. Are there hubs around the world for luxury quartz, like certain markets that are particularly interested in it? Or is it just sort of equal across all markets in, in sort of mainstream luxury distribution? No, it's it's very interesting. You see, um, so uh, there's some regions which are really, really strong in quartz. I mean, in Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, also U.S. is interesting here in a very nice quartz market. Of course, there's one region which is absolutely less quartz. It's Asia. Uh, Asia because of, uh, yeah. It, it has to do also uh, specifically China. China is very, I mean, now it, things have changed, but in the past, I mean, mechanical was really preferred. It was also, you know, in the, in the mind of Chinese, um, that they're very scared of counterfeits. Um, they're very scared of, of having to bring somewhere to watch the service it. you open it and you do something wrong. So that's why they, they, they came, they usually do trips to Europe and they, they, they went on the seven day trip. And one of their stop on the trip was buying a Swiss made watch, a mechanical watch. And the idea of mechanical, since, uh, you know, there's no batteries, since it, it runs by itself, as long as you, you, you pull it up, it, it just runs. And, and for, for Chinese people, it was really, you know, you buy a mechanical watch and you never have to open it or service it in the best cases. And, uh, that's, that's one of the underlying, uh, uh, story about about why mechanical. Yeah, that's so interesting because as you're identifying, there's small cultural preferences, prejudices or preferences that specific consumers have, which can change from region to region. And the, those can have a massive impact on the products and the prices, where they buy, even though it sometimes comes down to tiny little preferences. I want mechanical because I don't trust anyone around town to change a battery. <laughs> right? Like that's something that you would never be able to guess from afar, but the emergent effect of having that preference amongst most consumers means that the market buys a completely different product than, you know, maybe several thousand miles away. Absolutely. I mean, there's also, speaking of quartz, it's, it's also a kind of a mechanical that is preferred from, from women, you know, because uh, you, you, you don't have to, to rewind your watch. You, you don't have to set it. Uh, it's just running. Um, I, I, I see a lot of uh, 
my wife, I have a lot of friends around me. They they, they prefer the, the the course. They don't want to, you know, the, the involvement level with the, with the technical part is is not their their preferred subject. But then I, also yeah. things change. <laughs> no, it's fine. And, and you know, the the women's watch market is one that I know the brand is strong in. Uh, I'm not a woman myself, so I don't have a lot to say about that, but I, I've, I've always admired the watches. But I want to go and talk a little bit more about your background. You, I think, began your career a little bit in, in the watch industry. Maybe it was TAG. I don't know if that was one of your first jobs, but when you were, when you were younger. And then you, and then you left the watch industry, and it was, I think, ironic. You worked in health and tobacco, <laughs> and then you went first tobacco, then health, and then you went back to watches. Jack Hoyer, who is, of course, you know, of, of the Tag Hoyer renown, did something similar. It was his family business. He left to, I think, electronics and came back and brought a lot of great ideas that at the time um, in the 60s and 70s and, and, and 80s and all that stuff was, was fantastic. Um, well, I guess 60s and 70s for the brand. What did you bring with you to Maurice Lacroix that you picked up from other industries that you feel give you an edge up? I mean... A hundred percent of customer centricity. Okay. And kind of, kind of, yeah, I mean, what you have in, in, in tobacco, and, and I was in pharmaceutical, and um, tobacco tobacco has has a bit kind of the I don't know if you know uh, Procter and Gamble, but in terms sure. of marketing developments and campaign developments and product developments, because tobacco is a product, but you don't have much to say about the product. It's it's all the marketing aspect. So your campaigns really have to sit, and there's a lot of money. So. Uh, in terms of advertising spent. So you really have to, to be kind of very pinpointed when you bring out a campaign, when you develop a product, you bring out even a line, you even test uh, uh, campaign lines and, and these kind of details. And pharmaceutical was a bit the same problem. Pharmaceutical is more, uh, the health and safety aspect is when you bring something out, it has really to be bulletproof. And of course, in terms of um, communication, you can't communicate, you cannot say all the things you want. It has to be really related to the product. But then again, it's it's also you you look at the product and the really target groups and you're very, very kind of a, almost surgical work in, in terms of planning marketing campaigns and, and, and taking into account what, what the customer need is. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch Store and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Now, in the watch industry, I think that's an interesting parallel because in pharmaceuticals and tobacco, a lot of the marketing, as you said, cannot be about the product, but it's also about generating demand where there is an automatic demand. You know, Parker and Gamble, that creates a lot of consumable products, is saying, you know, you need to wash your clothes, so wash your clothes with our stuff. With pharmaceuticals, for example, you first have to establish the problem and then create a solution for it. Same thing with watches. 
you have to say that this watch is a solution to some problem you didn't know you had, like what to wear on vacation to Aruba, for example. Um, how, how do you feel that the watch industry can learn from those areas? Because I feel that a lot of watch industry marketing today um, is crude by definition. It's not as precise. It's not as well thought out. Of course, there's much smaller budgets associated to it. But if you look at the sort of beautiful golden age of watch industry advertising, they were wonderful ads that did exactly that. So what you know, what is it that you think that the watch industry can continue to learn from those more precise marketing practices? I mean, it's it's really kind of the the whole the whole marketing basics. But I think the, the kind of having a clear brand positioning, a clear USP, and then communicating this in, in a sense that it's 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 consumer centric or, or customer centric. Um, because if you look at the, the how even today, I mean, we're, we're in 2022, how some products communicate. It's like uh, you have an ad with a product picture and then just the brand logo, and that's it. It's kind of, you know, there it's product centric. You are imposing your product to the customer. Yeah, where did the world this come changed? from? Where, where did that, because that, that is actually what most people think of when they think of a watch brand ad. Exactly what you said. It's picture of the product, uh, brand name. Like, that's it. Like, <laughs> nothing else. Like, here's what we make and here's who we are. Uh, we don't even have the word watch on this ad or where to buy it or any technical information or any emotions, just product. Like, where did that come from? I mean, it's, it's been, they've been doing the same thing since the seventies. It hasn't changed. And if you but, look at all the other industries, you know, they're the, cus- the consumer, the consumer, consumer centric communication is in the middle. Okay. So now where so many brands are focused on direct to consumer, they have to be, as you said, consumer focused, but they don't have the history of it. I guess there's two options here. A, direct-to-consumer does not make sense for most brands. They should continue to go through third-party distribution, which is actually what, what I recommend. Or they have to add this whole new personality to the company, which is a customer-centric marketing department. Which of those two things makes more sense for, the, for, for most brands? I mean, it's, it's a long way to go. And it's, it's, it's uh, I mean, the first thing, how many brands know their customers? I mean, yeah, or they think they know, but do they really know? Uh, and, and, and often, as we talked about it before, uh, the decision about launching a product and, and, and communicating is, is, uh, is, is the CEO, the managing director's choice. And this is, I want to do this watch and uh, I know the customer and this is enough and uh, we'll do this. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, it can work, but uh, today, I mean, look at it. I mean, social media is such a topic. And, and, and in, the, in the modern world, customers want to give their advice and, and even customers want to develop products. Uh, that's, a new, that's, a, that's a new game. I, 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 I'm so glad you're talking about this because it sort of shows a little bit what the modern watch brand manager has on their mind. And it's a lot of difficult questions and things like that. Um, I, I just sort of want to make one more comment on that. I'm really glad you brought it up. I think some brands are guilty of this. And I call it, they have this aspirational notion of who they're selling watches to. Rather than market to who they actually are selling to, they market to who they wish would be wearing their watch. So they actually engage in sort of this degree of... Um, you know, missing the mark because of their own egos and ambitions as a brand. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so right now you're in you're in Miami. You went from Switzerland over to Miami. What are you doing in Miami? What are the next few days going to look like for you? 
So we were launching a very interesting product. It's, it's a, a sustainable watch. And uh, what's interesting, just a chat we just had about customer centricity. When we launched the Icon in 2016, uh, what, we, what we recognize is we, we can, we're speaking to a much younger generation. So we, were, we, we didn't communicate much to millennials, but we started communicating to millennials. So in 2016, they were basically 20 to 40, 40, yeah, 45. And this is now four or five years ago. And now comes a new generation. And interestingly, I've been receiving emails since two, three years where customers ask us, what kind of packaging are you using? Um, I even get questions of, are your watches vegan? Uh, and uh, th- this has been really increasing. And, and we, we looked into this because th- there was kind of a hint and we started looking into this and we said, oh yeah, right. And also there's a new generation coming up. It's a generation Z, Gen Z, as we call them. And these are basically, um, they, I think they're born in 1995 or 1997. So it means uh, the youngest ones are about 10 years old and the oldest ones are about 25 years old. And um, it's, it's interesting to see they have concerns, uh, they have needs, they're much more they're much more demanding than the millennials. And, and one of the big topics, so they have a lot of topics in their agenda. Uh, one, one is, uh, you know, and one is sustainability. It's, it's a big topic, but I mean, sustainability, um, interestingly in the U S it's more, it's more on a social level. Right. And, and in, in Europe, sustainability is more on, on the product, on, on the responsibility level, uh, on, on what do you market or manufacture as, as a manufacturer, uh, you know, do you manufacture, manufacture waste with your products, you know, i.e. packaging or other things? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting talk, topic in, in for that. And, and based on this, we've, we've now developed a watch, which we're going to present in, in about two days, uh, which is, which has the sustainable, which is a sustainable watch. So what's, what's sustainable about it? Cause I think, you know, try again, I'm, I'm, I was born in 82, so I'm, I'm the oldest millennial, uh, and I, I agree we don't care as much, but the newer generations couldn't agree more. They think of sustainability a lot. What I've sort of distilled it down to is that people are worried about accidentally buying from a company which is harmful for the environment. I think it's less about them wanting to do business with a company that is actively trying to protect the environment, but it's sort of like worrying that it's sort of like an oil company, like they're innocently doing business with a company that little little known to them does something tragically bad. So they're looking for signals that a company is shares their values. But but isn't it isn't the fact that you know watch brands have been relatively low environmental impact to begin with? They're not a particularly wasteful industry? It's it's not a particularly wasteful industry, but I mean um, and, and the whole thing about what they're expecting these managers is is, you know, what are the signs or how do you contribute? They don't expect you to be 100% carbon neutral, uh, green everywhere, re- everything is recycled, but they expect you to show signals. And, and today, one of the, the most easiest signals to show is just your packaging. You know, Are you using wood or plastic? Or, or are you using uh, recycled materials? You know? 
We got to talk about this for a second because, first of all, I agree. Packaging is probably the most logical area. And some brands have done this where they have uh, amended their packaging to use more recycled materials to change the size of their packaging. But we have to laugh here for a moment. This is an industry that knows how to make a great product but make some of the weirdest packaging decisions ever. Like Historically speaking, we could have a lot of jokes about watches and their packages, right? Absolutely, <laughs> it's like it's 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 it's, it's an evergreen. And, and you you buy this watch, and then you get a huge box. And what 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 do most of the customers do? Especially uh, you know people. I mean, we see it in Switzerland. We have a lot of uh, a lot of our sales are are tourists coming in, and they're on, they're on like a week or two week trip. And if they buy two watches, they can't bring back two watches which are almost big, bigger than their suitcase. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, I have. I've had to make some difficult decisions. I'm a watch collector. I'm sure you are as well. You can keep some boxes, but you have to make this painful decision. And I used to like hold on to them to the last moment. I was like, you know what? Just never going to use this box. Got to get rid of it. I know it's got some cool stuff, but we're not just talking about paper and plastic. We're talking about woods and metals and some of the packaging decisions. You know, and again, it's supposed to create a sense of uh, of the product is impressive and prestigious and things like that. But so few people keep these things. What, in your opinion, should the packaging do? Should it be a travel case? Should it be small? Like, if you had your way, what would most watch packaging be like? I mean, we have our way because we, with this new watch we're bringing on uh, in two days. I mean, it's two things. We, we're, we're doing, basically, it's a it's it's a composite, so it's a mix of recycled PET plus fiberglass, which is uh, actually um, five mile, five times more resistant than uh, than than plastic, but twice as hard. Yeah? And we use this for the case, for the for the case back, of course, the bezel, and also the buckle. And the packaging of this watch is a is a coffee mug out of the same material. And if you don't, you know, it, it, you, you open the watch, you got, you open the mug, you got the watch inside, and then you can decide what you want to do out of the mug. It's either it remains your packaging, or you can oh. use it as a coffee mug, or you can put pencils in it, or you can plant a tree in it. You know, you, you decide. Or <laughs> if you want, you can even recycle it. Yeah. I don't know how recycling is in the US, but in Europe, all over, we recycle pet bottles. Uh, so you just put it in a pet trash and it's oh, recycled. Oh, okay. Okay, so that's great. Okay, I, I want you to try an experiment, if you want, okay? Um, you know, I'm on the Mauricio Car website right now, and we're talking about packaging. What I realized is that most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, when you're looking at a product online in a store or on the brand's website, you never see a picture of the packaging. So I would like to know if putting a picture of the packaging and even maybe a description of the packaging would increase conversion rate. Would you be willing to put that on some of your product pages? And then in the future, we can talk about whether or not that made an impact on sales. Well, for this product we're launching, you will see the packaging because it's, it's, part, it's part of the story. Because every watch with its packaging corresponds to 17 recycled PET bottles. And what we do is, um, for 25% of production cost, we re, uh, donate this to a, to a charity, which is actually the foundation or the charity, the charity, which is producing the raw material for the watches. Okay. So with recyclable stuff, is this something which is going to be a special thing for a more expensive product or is the future having all of your packaging uh, be practical, minimalized, recyclable, 
minimum impact? You know, like I'm just curious from a business perspective, what makes more sense? Is that marketing message or is it actually feasible to actually make a big change and replace all the packaging? Yeah, that's what we do. I mean, we're now doing it for this launch relaunching. Um, and, and end of the year, we will also change all our other packaging to a to kind of this corporate standard watch box would also be out of this material. Uh, so it's, 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 it's two things. One is, is for this launch because you will see it's, it's a coffee mug, but every, every, every watch is, a, there's 10 different colors because the advantage of this material, you can choose any color you want. You can have it. Uh, and then we, we assorted the color of the basil with the color of the coffee mug. So it's, it's kind of a nice touch to the whole, uh, oh, to that's the whole nice. launch. That's yeah. nice. I, I look, I think that's a smart move. I mean, a lot of brands do, you know, these recycled straps or cases, and then they charge a premium for them. And then when you look really closely at the small print, you recognize that it actually uses more energy to produce this recycled plastic case than like a, you know, a normal plastic case. And uh, it's in a luxury watch that costs $9,000. And the, the actual sustainability outcome becomes much less exciting than the actual promise and message. And so I sort of scoff and laugh at a lot of these sustainable marketing practices that go into, you know, limited edition expensive products. But I do fully back exactly what you're saying, Stefan, about trying to reduce where you can. The watch industry is already pretty environmentally friendly as it is. I mean, it really is in the scheme of industrial practices. Packaging waste is one of the few areas that they can do. So I... I implore brands to follow this type of lead that Marisa Craw is doing and not do it as a gimmick where you pass on a high expense to consumer, but you make a meaningful change. Stefan, how many years do you think it might take to make a full transition? You mean to uh, in terms of packaging? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this I mean, we're starting this end, I mean the, the the this end of the year we 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 have changed all our packaging. It's it's not a big change, you know, it's, yeah, it's just not, bringing it's not out that the hard new- to do. Do you, would you say that more brands should do that? I mean, would you recommend that's a that's an effective way to make a, a an improvement in your environmental impact? I mean, to put it the other way around. I I've seen now more and more customer not purchasing your brand because they look at what it's come with or, or they see you're not really making an effort, so it's not for them. That's the kind of situation we're into. No? Interesting, interesting. So it's so it's serious. It's a serious thing for you right now. Yes, I mean it's. I mean it, because I mean the watch. The watches will cost um, about it's seven hundred Swiss francs. So you're talking. You're talking already a, a population, some, the younger people who can afford this because it's affordable. But they look at these things. They look how it's packaged, and they take they take conscious purchase decisions. And one of them is they look how it's packaged. If it's if they see you don't you don't care about it, or you're not making an effort. They're like, why am I going to purchase that brand? It's not speaking my values. And and I think I want to add, the reason this is so much an issue is that consumers have an enormous amount of choice. If you want to spend, like you said, around 700 Swiss francs, uh, even more, uh, up to 1,500, 2,000, there are so many entry-level luxury watches out there for you, an enormous amount. Consumers presented with this awesome amount of choice have to make decisions based upon values, which of the watches move them emotionally in the right direction. Um, and and I, again, I'm just trying to confirm what you're doing, but explain some context here that in, in a competitive market space, you have to take whatever edge you can, right? Yeah. And I mean, for me also, what's important is, I mean, 
sustainability, the sustainable product doesn't need to look bad. You know, we always have kind of these, these, these old images in mind. Oh, it's recycled. It's going to look bad, you know, but I think, I think today we're at the level where we can design things and we can, we can commercialize things without any compromise. You know, you, you, you get your beautiful watch. It's got a nice packaging and you're not making any compromise. It, it doesn't look, you know, as, as in the past when you had recycled paper, it was gray and uh, it was harsh. Uh, it's not there anymore. You know, it, things have changed. And, and today, technology and design and innovation and developments make it possible that, that actually you, you can have something that's recycled or upcycled, as you call it today, but it looks as good as, as the standard stuff. So let's talk about the different side of marketing, and that is not just products and the way they're designed, but also the brand itself, the ambassadors, the sponsorships, the relationships. Talk a little bit about your strategy today in Marisa Kron and, and who you connect with, what the partnerships you have are, what the goals you have uh, for them. Because you've taken an interesting approach where you blend known commodities like sports, but maybe with a certain types of series or thing that isn't necessarily as well known. So talk a little bit about that really important side of the brand, because you can't just make products today. You have to do these other things. What's your strategy with all that? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the big point is about the urban environment. And, and where does this come from? What, what kind of urban look and feel from the brand? And going back to our customers, who are our customers? We talk about millennials, we talk about Gen Zs. You know, these are people and, and talking about why they would purchase a watch. And, and most of these people... Um, you know, they, 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 they are, they are in development. You know, it's not people that are retiring. They have their career in front of them and uh, they, they are in a very interesting phase of life. You know, what think about all the things that happened between the 20, your twenties and your thirties. You know, some of them, they, 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 they get a new job. They, 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 they graduate. Some of them get, get married. You get kids. I mean, there's so many things happening there and, and watches for some reason is is kind of a uh is a kind of very way to celebrate or or also to 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 indulge in and and thank yourself uh you know is i worked hard i've I've got this promotion okay i want to mark this or it's been 10 years i've done this i want to watch so there's something about this and what we've seen about these 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 communities millennials where do they go or where potentially have most of them uh, concentrated? And what happens is often people leave their hometowns, go in big uh, metropoles, make a career. And then obviously when, when you're your 40s or your 50s afterwards, then you want to have some uh, a calmer life. And then you, you sort of move out of town and you go out uh, in a more quieter place. Uh, back to your hometown, whatever. But there's the city is really kind of a magnet and an attraction for all these millennial and young generations. So this is why we have an aspect on on the urban, ur- this kind of urban feel, urbanity is, is very important in the brand. And based on this, this is where we select our our sponsorships. So we just uh, announced uh, the FIBA three by three. It's 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 actually street basketball. But it always happens in an urban environment. You know, they build up stadiums in the cities. So that's that's why we we selected this. There's another one is called King of the Court. It's kind of a beach volleyball, but it's always happening also in cities. Um, then we do Formula E sponsorship with Mahindra, and Formula E always happens in the cities. 
Um, and then uh, the last one to, to actually to support our launch, which uh, which is happening in two days, the Sustainable Watch, we teamed up with Red Bull Dancer Dance Style. Red Bull Dancer Style is about dance contests in cities with mass of people. And so this is what drives kind of the, uh, the underlying uh, sponsorship strategy. Of course, it, it always has to be uh, something uh, in, of interest for millennials. You know, it's, it has to be something dynamic, young, uh, fresh and modern. You know, three by three basketball is, is, is become, is, I think has just become the Olympic discipline. King of the court will become. So, you know, it's also very popular sports of this generation of this, this 16 to 25 generation. Uh, and, and this is what, you know, looking at what, what they like, what, what excites them. This is where we invest into sponsorship. It's a very interesting strategy. Very clever. Thank you for explaining to me. Now that you've explained it, I understand, you know, the theme, which has connected everything together. But this approach, of course, requires extra time and research. You have to discover these events and see if they make sense for the brand. Plus these, um, these particular events and activities, you know, have niche followings, which means that to reach enough people, you have to do a lot of these. Um, where, where do you and where do your, you know, your colleagues at the brand learn about these events and, and what goes in the decision-making process to decide if these work for you? Because I can imagine there's dozens and dozens and dozens of options available to you each month. Yeah, but you, what you always try to get is, is kind of the international or kind of the, the, the league uh, sponsorship, which is the most uh, efficient for uh, FIBA, three by three basketball. It's in 15 markets. There's, there's games in 15 markets and it's, it's global. It's a global brand. And interestingly, it also matches our top, top markets, top, uh, top selling markets. Um, for the, for the volleyball, same thing. It's, it's about, uh, there's about 10 events. So in 10 different markets, Formula E, there's, I think there's about 20 or 24, 20 races a year. Same thing, and uh, and the Red Bull Dancer style. It's about it's, it's a, there's a lot of pre competitions, which we're also part of, but then the main competitions. It's about it's about nine to, to ten, and so it's international events. You know, we're a small team, so for us, it's already about uh, sixty events, sixty to hundred events, big events, uh, uh, which we are can participate because we don't organize them. It's always the partners who organize them. We're part of it. But then you also have the whole hospitality package. So in all these events, you can in, invite your retailers. You can invite your customers in the markets. So it's a, it's a very nice hospitality platform for retailers, for distributors. And it's, it's also a very nice platform then to invite uh, people from the press, media, and, and, right. and really bring out the who is Mobis Lacroix and what we do and, and uh, why, we, why we participate in these things. Yeah, thank you for explaining. I want to comment that the reason I'm I'm having Stefan talk about this so much is that I think that Marissa Gaw is doing it right. The strategy they're doing um, is is a little bit distinctive from from the others. The partnerships you're having are, are new territory. Um, it is a very wise approach for the brand this size, and I, I think that you're doing it right. So I'm I'm complimenting you. Um, I, I want to talk now just about more what my audience is, and, and I want to sort of preface this by saying, over the years, we've identified where traffic comes to us from, right? We're a watch enthusiast publication. You read about the product, you understand how it's made, if it's comfortable. Something like a brand sponsorship might get you interested in the first place. So we see when people 
come to us from basketball or come to us from music or come to us from fashion. And it, it, it of course, translates as to where the brand's focus and attention are. And what we find is that, you know, before people buy the product, they want to make sure, okay, I like the brand. I like the design. I like the values. Is it actually a good watch? And so we found that, you know, about 85% of consumer interest when you spend, you know, over a certain threshold, maybe it's over 500 or over $1,000, you start to do reviews on that watch. And then everyone sort of wants to know the same things. Is it well made? Does it look nice? Is it competitively priced? For the consumer that likes watches, what are some of the messages you have now coming? What are some of the new exciting products? We only have a, about a minute or two left, but just sort of give a little bit of a tease. If you are a watch lover, where should you look uh, at Marisa Cron next? I mean, on Louis Lacroix, it's, uh, you know, 70% of our business today is Icon. And, and all we do on Icon is the same thing we do on the others. So you, you got kind of the whole, we have the competence of doing high watchmaking development with the masterpieces, meaning this, this know-how is infused in the icons and all the watches we do, which gives you the high quality of the watches. Um, what is also nice is the design. It's, it's really what is requested at the moment on the market in terms of, you know, these kind of seventies Gerald Genta design. Um, it's got functionality because you've got the easy strap exchange system. So, you know, you, you can buy, you got the leather strap, you buy the, the metal strap, you can change your watch or you've got versatility. You can change for the weekend to versus on the week watch. And, and all the quality aspects, you know, it's uh, all the icons are 200 meter uh, water resistant, screw crown. So it's got a lot of watchmaking quality, watchmaking details, which at the end, we always say at Maurice Lacroix, it's very high perceived value. I, I want to say that I actually think that it's a great collection to go with. It's very versatile. Like you said, it's got that trendy Gerald Genta integrated bracelet look, but it isn't something you just came up with yesterday. It is part of the brand's history. It is a very good value. The The strap changing system works pretty well. Um, you know, I think that anyone that's looking at a watch of this style, especially enthusiast, would be really foolish not to to take a very close look at, at the icon. You have enough versions already, right? So there's a lot of variety to look at. Stefan, thank you so much um, for for talking. This was really fantastic. Um, I love sharing, you know, some of the stories behind their brand because you know when people just see Maurice Lacroix, there's there isn't necessarily a face of the brand yet. Yet there's this, you know, very interesting, um, open-minded manager with a lot of great ideas in you uh, that helps make some of these decisions. So it's fantastic to hear about the context and all that. Have a great rest of your trip um, in 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 the United States. I hope you learned some stuff, and I look forward to what what you've learned about the market next time. Everyone, you can check out the Marisa Kral website. And again, this has been my guest, uh, Mr. Stefan Vosser from Marisa Kral. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ariel. Was another. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. <laughs>